Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong. Joining me this week from our radio roundtable of regulars is our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy. Good morning, Jeff. Also with us, as always, our station manager, Peter J. And hey. my co Oh, hey. <laughs> I threw you off. <laughs> I, I took you off your A game. <laughs> Wait a minute now. What, what are you doing? <laughs> and from our, our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy. And as always, with our station manager, Peter J. And my co host, Chris. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? Hey, if it gets any better, I'm going to start worrying. How's yeah. that? Huh? that? Just that... fine and dandy. Thank you. <laughs> We're just real glad you're here, Jeff. I mean, you uh, you had a little uh, time out in the, uh, the open doors on uh, this weekend, I hear. I certainly did. Uh, I completed my 20th pan mass challenge in mm. uh, the absolute blazing heat and humidity, the worst uh, temperature conditions in the 43-year history of the ride, but uh, made it through 190 miles. Oh, that's fabulous. And uh, still walking. Um, I, I guess, I guess I'll say... I'll, I'm sorry and congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> well, I can share with you that I am grateful for the ice bench that they had in Lakeville at mile 70. I sat on it for about 10 minutes and that pretty much put out a blazing inferno. I'll leave it at that. Oh, God, yeah. I'll bet it was something. Anybody else do anything over the weekend? <laughs> yeah, how was your weekend? Yeah. <laughs> well, today we're going to be kind of going on a grab bag of uh, topics. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, what we'd like to start with maybe is just a little discussion about a little contretemps over the weekend uh, between uh, a resident of uh, a prominent resident of Florida and the Department of Justice. The search and seizure conducted at Mar-a-Lago by the FBI on former President Trump's residence. I have, I, have, I have one question. Yes. Is a contretemps similar to a kerfuffle? It's it's probably less um, less uh, just a little less ethnic. Let's put it that way. It's <laughs> just like a kofefe, uh, a kofefe, <laughs> a scuffle. Well, there's that. Yes, a dust up, a to do. Well, you know the document that actually reveals unto all of us the inner meaning of kofefe was probably part of the seizure. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's supposed to stay at the White House. Yeah, well, according to the Wall Street Journal, it's mm -hmm. uh, there was a um, tip that there were um, mm -hmm. documents that should have been surrendered by the outgoing administration to the uh, National Archives and the other appropriate bodies that were taken against the uh, the law uh, to allegedly to the president, the former president's residence in Florida. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, what kind of sends me off is the fact that it was an informer. I mean, there seemed to be a lot of informers coming out of the woodwork uh, these days. Well, no, you got to remember that the Trump administration leaked like a sieve, like mm. no other previous administration um, all mm. the time. It's not something that I was particularly surprised by that um, they, because of the failure to adhere to like norms and standards, that um, mm -hmm. leaking was just a, a typical part of the 45 administration. And I, I'm not surprised that people close to him continue to share tidbits um and it could have been inadvertently it could have been uh you know, no need to say that it was a, in, an intentional uh leak either or two mm -hmm. yeah well there's there is at the base of it i think for for everyone the the challenge of speaking truth to power and maintaining your integrity mm -hmm. so if there are supposedly adults in the room trying to help steer the ship of state in some responsible manner you know there's this sort of ongoing bout with well you know do i 
try to reason with where things are and keep things on track. Failing that, what do you do? Um, and I expect that there are a number of people who just inadvertently may have expressed their frustrations between themselves and others supposedly trusted people, and eventually those kinds of discussions find their way out the door. So a good number of the leaks may very well just have been washroom discussions or corridor discussions or whatever. Washroom, so, Don, that, there's, a, there's a topic that's apropos of this whole subject. Well, that's right, because that room was in fact used for the very careful storage of a number of documents <laughs> in a uh, completely secure porcelain receptacle. There um, and yeah, so, mm -hmm. you know, Hollywood, you know, I have to say Hollywood writers can't come up with this stuff. No. You know, Hollywood yeah, can't keep right. up. Yeah, oh, and, we should recall that um, known intelligence operatives from um, at least one other uh, great power have been um, detained and removed from the country because of their presence at Mar-a-Lago in the past. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, we should, uh, you know, that's the other obvious concern is if mm. uh, we don't know if uh, Mr. Trump knew about these documents, we don't know that uh, whether he kept them for vanity or uh, because mm -hmm. they made him feel important or powerful or because, um, you know, conspiracy theorists might say he had something to hide. But um, what is uh, for sure is that some of them were classified as far as, well, at least according to the information we have so far. And that, um, of course, is a potential national security risk. So as, you know, um, entertaining as some people might find this obviously there is a grave issue of uh, mm -hmm. potential breach of national security uh, as well no i would say um i was watching last night i was watching the news reports of the whole story and uh, one of the uh people being interviewed was uh, none other than stephanie grisham who was a uh, former white house uh press secretary for uh, the former president and um, she had predicted before the Wall Street Journal had run its piece that it was an informant that had uh, had indicated this. And, uh, you know, I do take comfort that there are people out there with a uh, sense of right and wrong who uh, you know made observations that there were national security documents in an improper location and uh, called it to the attention of the authorities. Uh, the thing that mystifies me is, some of the press reports uh, that suggest that this was an unauthorized intrusion on the uh, former president's property and that this was orchestrated by the Democrats to prevent him from becoming uh, or running for president again, or that it was some sort of nefarious scheme to, to harm him. And I look at it, first of all, the FBI director is somebody that uh, Trump himself had appointed. It's an independent uh, justice organization, and nobody's focusing on the wrong here. The wrong here is being in the possession of national security documents. Uh, we're going to find out what was in those documents, but it's incredibly troubling to me that somebody can be so careless and so reckless, reckless with uh, these types of materials. And in order for a federal judge to issue a warrant in these circumstances, there had to be substantial proof and probable cause of an actual crime that took place. Now, I actually read a press report this morning that was also disturbing, and, and it suggested that there ought to be some transparency by the Biden administration in revealing what they were looking for and what they found on the property. Now, I dare say that if the Biden administration got into that type of a discussion, that would be wrong. Yeah, We do know that the former president and his lawyers are in possession of the warrant and what they were looking for on that, that property. Why isn't that reporter suggesting that the former president produce that document and that the former president be transparent and that the former president tell us what they were looking for? Because he has in his possession that information, that warrant, and those materials. And I would suggest that he doesn't want people to see it because he's not going to... Uh, the American people are not going to like what they see because it implicates him in a horrible crime. 
And uh, so I just wish that uh, some of the uh, so-called press that are reporting some sort of a conspiracy would would just take a step back and examine their real role in a democracy as a, a as a fourth branch of government and and provide an oversight instead of uh, trying to incite. I would rather see them report the facts and give us insight i n s i g t instead of inciting people uh, to rise up and do harm in the E-I-N-C-I-T-E. And I, I'm fearful for uh, the poor judge who issued this order, and I'm fearful mm-hmm. for uh, the Department of Justice employees uh, who are facing threats from this. That is real troubling uh, behavior. You've got somebody who engaged in a crime, and people are coming to stand up and protect him rather than... Uh, get to the bottom of what really is going on here and how our national security is being uh, harmed by this reckless action. I, I absolutely agree. The um, the inflammatory uh, rhetoric um, may be good for clicks and may be good for account with uh, donors and maybe count with uh, obtaining the blessing of um, the former president but uh it's also having... good for merchandising as well yeah <laughs> well, it's happening. I, I just it's a it's um that's awful but i think the having been covered as a journalist stories from all over the world uh where this kind of level of inflammatory rhetoric has been um heard before and where it's been followed by uh real violence and uh, i think jeff's absolutely right that um the theater that's been put on by uh, some officials, maybe it's a sincere belief that this is an appropriate response, but if it is, they should know that the consequences are likely to be um, acts of violence uh, against people. And and uh, that's a Pandora's box that nobody should ever want to open. And um, I, I've seen what the consequences are of that kind of lawlessness. And it's um, it's not fun to be part of that kind of history well given the fact that the the press context that we work in nowadays uh generates statements like sandy hook never happened and of course you know the courts most recently have ruled on that one um and and the outcome on that one i think is both logical and appropriate but there's this massive gray area where people, you know, engage in whataboutism and all the other distractions, gaslighting, um, and Potemkin defenses that do nothing more than foment uncertainty, doubt, as though there's some kind of equivalence of sides here. I, it, it's pretty clear in my mind that first of all, our Attorney General Merrick Garland, who is at the very least cautious man by nature and and looks at everything very, very carefully. There's no way the Department of Justice would have even considered this notion unless there was, in their minds, reasonable cause for search and seizure to take place. So even beyond the courts, even beyond the fact that a judge said, yes, you know, this is warranted. I think on this one, given the unprecedented nature of it, I think on this one, there were probably many hands justifying the existence of this action no i I think you're right i mean it it, for this on this level for something like this to happen um in the way that it did it has to have been something that people gave a lot of thought to and realized that this was going to spur up this sort of reaction i mean the i try to look at things in a context of history and of course i go back to the time of uh huey long we were in the uh, throes of a depression. Huey Long was at one time described as the most dangerous man in the United States. And his tactics were, they laid the groundwork for Trump. I mean, I don't think Trump's ever read uh, T. Harry Williams' biography of Huey Long, but he's following the same level of demagoguery. Right. Uh, it's just rile up, you know, he, talking about, uh, you know, long referred to his constituents as crackers, you know, and he says, we're going to get to, we're going to get the state and we're going to get down to Baton Rouge and we're going to throw out all these, uh, these people, these carpetbaggers coming down here. And it's the same thing that Trump has done. Now it's the same thing 
to a certain extent that a lot of politicians politicians have done. But to get to the level of the president of the United States and have it just be, and of course, this is my opinion, pure demagoguery, just riling up anybody they can. And then I go back and I remember when I was a kid in California, there were always the rumors about the Minutemen out in the desert conducting uh, uh, tests to, you know, test out their capability of taking over small towns and things of that sort and arming themselves. And it seems that now it's become it's become an, an accepted thing that, you know, this sort of left, right, whatever, whichever wing militia movement seems to be taking hold. Yeah, it's the most dangerous part of populism. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, just to put a global view on it, populism is not limited to our shores. There, there's, there is something afoot globally uh, with respect to this movement, conservatism in general. And, I, you know, I'd love to know the extent to which this is rampant in other Western cultures. But clearly, I feel like we're at some precipice here just to look at the giant picture of it. But, you know, getting back to, as, as you were saying before, you know, we'd love to see why the document was written, why the search was conducted, and Trump could just as easily reveal all those details, as you pointed out, Jeff. And that putting that onus on the Biden administration, quite frankly, is is definitely a dis part of the distraction. Um, in fact, uh, the administration made it really clear that the president didn't know anything about this and heard about it through the press, just like everybody else, which as as it should be. Now, there are many people who are just not going to buy into that. They're just not. You know, they can say the president can deny it a thousand times, but but secretly, they will always believe that, you know, this is a vendetta uh, and it will be framed by the right exactly that way. But let's take a look at, again, pointing to the reasons why. Well, clearly there's January the 6th. And what, what strikes me as interesting is that they didn't, they, they went for paperwork because here again, there were these supposed 15 boxes that were removed, you know, by chance or choice from the White House. Uh, but they didn't go for anything electronic or digital. No computers, no no digital files, uh, not even the cell phone owned by the world's most dangerous thumbs. And they weren't looking for the smoking thumbs. They were looking for papers. So that tells me that, you know, indirectly it infers that this approach, this this search was for items that were requested to be returned specifically. I believe this was a limited but very necessary uh, warrant. And so it's, it almost speaks to the notion that the, the vacuum created by the reasons why it exists uh, is always going to be filled with stuff that's larger perhaps than reality. Well, it's, uh, it's a sad fact of where we are in American government and American politics uh, today, you know, I don't know, I don't know what to make of it. I will share a story. So um, I think it was Monday night or Tuesday night uh, in one of the dreadful Red Sox uh, losses. Uh, I needed to take a walk uh, at one point during the game and uh, came upon a, a Boston firefighter who was standing out on Jersey Street and uh, we just began to talk and, uh, you know, it was an interesting discussion. And at one point he asked me what I do for a living. And uh, I told him I was a state representative. And, you know, we began to talk uh, politics and uh, it became eminently clear during that discussion that he was an ardent supporter of Trump and, uh, you know, kept saying how everything is a conspiracy and it's all being set up. And, um, you know, I like the fact that uh, he liked the fact, I don't like the fact, he liked the fact that uh, Trump was not a, quote, uh, politician and that uh, he spoke his mind. And uh, it was just, uh, it was one of the most disorienting conversations I had. And, uh, you know, he uh, prepared to, uh, he uh, shared with me that 75% of uh, the firefighters uh, that he works with all voted for Trump and uh, they've had it with uh, these other people. They don't like Democrats. And I said, well, I said, you didn't even ask me what party I'm involved in. 
we had a it was a civilized conversation at the same token but he was just so uh, negative about everything except for Trump and and I said look at with everything that's been revealed over the past few weeks and uh, following the insurrection are you telling me that if he ran for president in 2024 you would vote for him and he said absolutely and uh, I said yeah it, it's just amazing but it also uh, informed me that He's not alone. There are lots of folks like that, including in Massachusetts. Um, and we have to we have to be prepared. We have to have uh, empathy. We have to listen. There is a point of view out there. And uh, I will continue to wonder what has made these folks so angry that uh, they will support someone whose goal it is to divide the nation and destroy democracy? That is the ultimate question uh, for me. I need your help and your guidance, team. More Perfect Union, how are we going to bring these folks around and uh, how are we going to get everybody uh, thinking in terms of that uh, more perfect union? You know, I think part of it is all of the frustration that people are feeling, what with inflation doing, what it's doing, uh, people feeling like they can't keep up. This has been going on for a really, really, really long time. And quite frankly, there are people who mine that frustration to their own ends. People who see opportunity in others, misery, frustration, uh, you know, putting up false gods, if you will. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously a big philosophical statement. But, you know, we've seen this coming for a very long time. It goes all the way back. It's traceable all the way back to 1980, you know, for 40 plus years. And, you know, when the the sort of longstanding relationship between labor and management and productivity was always in sync and that got broken in the 1980s and people were no longer rewarded commensurate with their work at a similar scale and the rich got richer and everybody else sort of stayed in the same place. Now, we can point to technology and we can point to a lot of other things. We've talked about this in the past, but, you know, offshoring, uh, increased automation, computation, and so on. You know, all of these things have, you know, created uh, horizon events and disconnects that have made it very, very difficult for people, especially people of limited means and, and limited education, to be able to find their way forward in a new world that really requires and increasing awareness and increasing flexibility over a lifetime of work over an entire 40 year career things change and and how can people survive thrive and move forward through that change because quite frankly most of us have careers that started in one place and ended up perhaps entirely somewhere else um and how did we captain that change how did we move forward how did we figure out how to keep advantaging our position in that change is extremely complex discussion in and of itself. And unfortunately, most people were either educated or not educated such that they were not able to do that. And, and they find themselves behind the eight ball. Hence this rise that eventually became frustration, that eventually became the Tea Party, that eventually became Trump's party all through the rise in populism, uh, a name used in the past for other reasons, but now attributed to this movement of frustration. Obviously, we're getting a little off topic going much larger here, but it speaks to the fact that somebody who happens to be driving all of this, the ex-president, is someone who is literally Teflon. Nothing seems to touch him. And he's protected by people who are continuing to support him in blind faith. All of the people who have something to gain, you know, the right wing pundits and polemics that automatically position what happened in recent days uh, against, you know, the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's quite frankly, you know, a, a very public war going on in the press as well as, you know, in the halls of Congress. Exactly. Yeah. And it 
yeah, the, the frustration level um, when you speak about from the 80s, I think it's exactly right. Um, the unions were pretty much effectively busted. I mean, the traffic controllers union was basically wiped out just as an example. And it's there is no agreement between labor and union anymore and labor and management. I'm sorry. Um, there's no agreement at all. And the disparity, which we've talked about before, again, between the 1% and the 99% is just massive and it's dangerously massive. Right, I would just reinforce what you're saying by uh, pointing out that, you know, again, as an outsider, you can see some things more clearly than others, which is mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, uh, I have no problem with uh, increased um, corporate competitiveness and you know adjustments to the labor market, uh, things of that nature. But what's different to the US experience compared to say uh, Europe or Japan or other um, what we call developed countries is the weakness of the safety nets that help people through those transitions. And in particular, I'm thinking the, um, the lack of those safety nets. And the, the way that that's impacting ordinary people is that other people in other countries have similar transitions as well. But um, it re reduces the ability of people here to accumulate the savings. When you're looking at, it's not just a work mm -hmm. uh, time experience you know during one's career but if you take the whole of life thing it's increasingly difficult for retired folk to just make ends meet because they haven't been able to accumulate the wealth uh, needed to see them through um and you know see we're, we're all seeing the consequences of that with our elderly uh, relatives you know, running out of money and um uh, that's the the hardest thing i think as an outsider to see is that um yes it's appropriate to promote corporate competitiveness with all the ways that we've done um, from both the parties. Uh, let's not forget that there was um, Mr. Clinton who oversaw the North American Free Trade Agreement. And I remember thinking at the time, well, that's great, um, but obviously companies are going to start sending jobs to places like Mexico where they can produce them cheaper. So what's the plan to help society adjust? Because that's going to be a huge uh, change in society. And, you know, there obviously there was no uh, plan to help people through that transition. So I guess I would po point fingers at both parties for creating the situation we have, mm. um, where, um, yes, we've done what's appropriate for promoting corporate efficiency, but we haven't done what's um, appropriate for helping society um, adjust to those changes. And so, um, obviously, yes, much more bigger question than the one we have had before us up to now but mm -hmm. that's that's what's led to so much of the frustration uh steve bannon for example the f president's former advisor um his father was um ruined in the 2007 housing crash and that scarred him and uh, his whole family personally and from that we've seen the fruit of the the ideas that were born of that that you know in that sense politicians are out to get the little guy and so you can see where that frustration frustration comes from but it's odd that that frustration has been attached to the party that has done more and promises less safety net efficiencies. It's bizarre that that's how it's worked out. But uh, I think people, and as we saw historically 100 years ago in many parts of the world, most particularly Italy and Nazi Germany, that the it's easier to blame others mm -hmm. uh, for your troubles and not um the politicians who you know uh, who may have been had a hand in creating it but how, that's not really a question or uh, an answer it's just a, a set of observations no yeah and I, I, again that's the the extreme demagoguery and of course you know you bring up nazi germany you have the big lie keep telling it the more do you tell it the better it gets, gets accepted the more people realize people come to believe that it's true and one of the i mean and you spoke about the um elder care and the uh, people who retire. Well, we've got the arrogance of an attack on Social Security. It's going to be latest uh, threats now are that Social Security will not be able to make full payments uh, as of 2035. And how can that be? People are still paying into it. And of course, I don't understand the full intricacy of it, but I understand that basically it's been cannibalized for many, many years. And it's just... You, you, too many people rely on Social Security for too much. That's a fact. They should be able to 
use Social Security as a buffer, something to maybe give them a little ease, a little confidence that they're going to make it, not as their sole income, but there are too many people who have to rely on it solely. Well, that gets to the fact that so many people you know, are one paycheck away from disaster right. through their entire careers, and they mm -hmm. never do get to save up some money. The rise at this point, put it this way, the the difficulty in hiring people right now because the labor market is so tight, which is a good thing, I think goes hand in hand with the recent rise in union activities. In other words, more and more people are saying, well, I don't want to quit this job just to go find another one somewhere else, even though that is clearly my option. You know, I'd like to make things better where I am because I like being here for some reason. But so people at this point are exercising two options. They're either voting for the union or they're voting with their feet. And that means that there is a mediating force that we may see over the next decade that tends to curb this aimless frustration that we're seeing. And so I, I hear the recent news reports about rising union activity as probably not a bad thing even though you know it makes companies have to manage their expenses more carefully but you know that's that's corporate life fellas exactly and it's 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 a matter of the the top end has to give a little bit back i guess i don't know i, I think that's rather a kind of a pollyanna view but there has to be something where there's a certain equity in between the worker and the boss Okay. Well, my dear friend that I saw the other night would call you a socialist talking like that. Uh, that was a, a <laughs> I lot. wanted to avoid that because I knew well, it was going to spark something. It, yeah, it was, uh, you know, uh, we, we had that type of a conversation. He goes, well, that's that's socialism. And uh, interesting to pick up on uh, what, we, what uh, you know, Chris, Pete and uh, Nick just talked about. This guy was a union employee, a firefighter. He's going to have a public pension. He's going to be all set financially for the rest of his life. But the two things he focused on, he said to me, all I know is that my 401k was worth more when Trump was president and I paid $2 a gallon for gas. I get it on the gas, but I'm not sure of the causal link between uh, President Biden and the gas prices. In fact, when I was over mm -hmm. in Denmark a couple months ago, uh, they were talking about the rising gas prices, and uh, we were at a meeting, and uh, I, I flippantly said, oh, that's Joe Biden, because here we are in a foreign country, and they're complaining about uh, gas prices. So I understand his frustration with the price of gas, but uh, he really can't blame that on, uh, on Joe Biden. But the, the 401k made me go back and look at my own account, because I wanted to see if there was much validity. And I went back and I looked at my account, and it is much higher than where it was when uh, Trump was president. It, uh, in fact, uh, it went up precipitously uh, in the first year and a half of the Biden presidency. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it did come down, but I'm still up uh, in comparison. But again, I'll say I'm not sure the causal link there between a particular presidential candidate and both gas prices and 401ks. But that was the heavy emphasis from this particular individual. And I struggled to understand how that person who's secure, financially secure for the rest of his life, could make a decision about who to support based on those two items. Well, if his 401k somehow or other is worse under the Biden administration, I think I would advise him to take a look at his fiduciaries first and foremost. Exactly. Where is your money going into? And it's probably going into a lot of the uh, same companies and the same groupings that seem to be just kind of gobbling up everything. Well, it can't be Trump stock because uh, it, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all... Uh, private in mm -hmm. private companies and sole proprietors. So uh, we can't attribute it to that. Uh, perhaps he had made some investment in Trump water or Trump stakes. Uh, and <laughs> maybe that didn't pan out so well. Trump you. 
Yeah. Trump, yeah, Trump University. He's got a degree from mm-hmm. Trump U. Uh, I want to take it back uh, briefly uh, to where we began talking about this uh, attempt uh, to recover the 15 boxes that, by the way, were requested on several occasions uh, with you know nothing coming back from uh, Trump and his assigns with respect to where those boxes might be. So there's been no response to requests, and now they've uh, basically said, okay, we're going to search for them uh, and uh, took all legal means to do so. Now, if that is the sum total of it, just, hey, this is federal property, we want it back. Uh, and taking that federal property out of the White House was in and of itself sufficient reason as as a crime or potential crime that they could they could do this. So what we may be looking at is a tempest in a teapot. That is, on one hand, there's no giant conspiracy. It's just the federal government trying to set to rights uh, materials that should have always been in their possession. Uh, and there would be no further action. Uh, if they retrieve the boxes, end of story, done. Okay, we've got what we needed. Now, on top of that, there is the notion that in conducting said search, if other information comes to light in ready form, that information, if it points to some specific crime, uh, can also be seized. That is, if in the process of gathering the 15 boxes, they discover other materials that point more directly to January 6th, purely as an aside of their action, because of the fact that it points to January 6th, it also falls under their purview, uh, even though the original warrant may not have been written as such. Uh, Now, do I think that that's likely? Probably not, but there'll certainly be speculation about that. The, The speculation on this will never end. And, and so it gets to the point of, okay, we're coming up to midterms. What does it mean? And if there's going to be other actionables from the court following that, following the midterms, and should Trump announce his candidacy, what does that mean with respect to the Office of the Attorney General, the FBI, uh, and so on, being able to can take, you know, take further action against a candidate? Uh, let me uh, also throw in um, one thing that we haven't covered on this issue, and it's the true irony of the situation. Yes. Um, it's the uh, materials, you know, if, if Trump is found to have violated federal law in removing and retaining classified documents without authorization, um, it's a felony punishable by five years in prison, but uh, it's a, a felony because of a law that was signed by President Donald Trump. And uh, he made such an issue of uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, using a private email server that uh, he could not wait to become the president to sign a law to punish people who uh, unlawfully possessed classified information. And uh, he could be uh, one of the uh, first people convicted of a statute that he signed into law. How's that for irony? Yeah, well, there'll be the, but I didn't mean it <laughs> aspect <laughs> of it. But yes, it is. there's a high irony there. Um, and in fact, I think the Clinton camp sort of responded with a simple tweet, but her emails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeff, yeah, I don't know if you can help this with your background as a lawyer, just as a procedural thing. When the um, FBI went to the judge for uh, the warrant, uh, there's all this talk about, oh, um, it would have been okayed by a much higher official. The judge doesn't, as I understand it, have to refer to anybody, right? They make that uh, on their their own. Uh, well, the, judge, right? the judge has to determine whether there's probable cause of a crime and has to understand just exactly what they will be looking for in executing this search. So in order for a warrant to be issued, there has to be some evidence. And and generally, in a case of a warrant, it's an affidavit. And an affidavit of somebody 
who can fill the judge in with the information about what he or she saw, where it was seen, and uh, you know just how to go about accessing it. So um, I would love to see that affidavit. Uh, certainly, uh, this information and evidence will come out should uh, should the former president be charged. Uh, all of this will become uh, much more public. But that's the mechanical piece uh, that a judge has to have in order to issue an order uh, on a warrant. And I'm sure that uh, this was examined closely, given the um, you know the high interest and uh, the potential defendant that is involved, and the fact that no president of the United States has been uh, in this particular type of situation before. So I'm sure they dotted every I and crossed every T. Would love to see that information, uh, but I'm not sure we're going to see it anytime soon. Right. But the judge is the only person who makes the decision about whether to issue it. They don't have to get clearance from above. They they may oh, inform no. their superiors, but there's no way that Merrick Garland is taking that decision. Correct. Right. And, and uh, a judge, uh, you know, I would uh, push back on this notion that a judge is going to talk to his or her superiors, uh, the judge is the superior. The judge is the uh, is the voice on whether that order should issue. He or she does not have to ask anybody or seek any, um, any higher authority. I mean, there, there are appellate courts, but they're not involved uh, at this stage of the game. It's entirely the decision of the judge. And I'm just to, I, again, I totally clarify. agree clarify for people there's no way that a uh, uh, politically appointed official could come to a judge and say hey let's do this. this that's just the realm of of hollywood fiction right correct definitely the realm of hollywood fiction this is uh so you would have uh, obviously the uh, united states attorney would be the one uh, who would be seeking uh, this warrant and they would be representing the government uh, before the judge, uh, but the judge is making the call based on the evidence in front of uh, him or her. And uh, typically in a case it's like this, it's going to be a very detailed affidavit, which breaks down. Uh, and we're hearing that it was an informant. So this is somebody who was actually on the property, saw the material, and could tell the court where that material was. So, um, you know, it's a it's a, a difficult standard to prove, and I'm sure they did heightened uh, a heightened vigilance on whether or not this particular warrant uh, should issue. And uh, like I said earlier in the program, uh, the president is in possession of the uh, former president is in possession of the warrant and uh, could share it with members of the public as an act of transparency. And uh, I would love to uh, see it, really see what evidence was there and what they were actually looking for. And the one thing that really struck me was he immediately came out and the one, one, the one point he touched down on was, they even went into my safe. Well, one would hope that if he was holding documents of that sort, he would at least have had the, uh, the foresight to put it into a safe, not just lying on top of, desk and uh you know his nightstand and uh, by the bedside absolutely and 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 jeff so i mean pretty much any lawyer could have answered those questions that you just answered so uh you know i just feel the journalist inside me uh, the, the you know i spent a lifetime as a seeker after truth and it's just annoying the heck out of me right now that there's been this willful misrepresentation of what are easily established facts uh in, in throughout so much of the media it's just like mind-blowingly infuriating i just had to get that off my chest sorry i, I share fury and uh um mega dittos i think is the expression that uh comes mega, to mind mega dittos i love that uh, i want i want to sort of frame all this i mean because i'm thinking about it sitting here and you know what i always ask myself you know what would i do if i were the emperor um that is you know i'm the person who owns the decision about how we proceed on this thing and of course I'm not a lawyer, nor have I ever played one on TV. However, there are some legal concepts from my business background that I'm familiar with. 
sometimes you write legal language to be expansive with, you know, for instance, in patent law includes, but not limited to writing documents that cite, you know, from the beginning of time to one day after the end of the earth, all legal language you find in some perfected language, a legal language. But here in writing a warrant strategically, if it were me to craft that document, I would go as limited as possible. That is, I would write a document requesting the return of 15 boxes of evidence, uh, uh, boxes as evidence of a potential crime, that the boxes belong to the federal government to be placed in the Library of Congress, and that said boxes, after having said ha several requests for their return, um, and demonstrating in some clear way that, yes, the boxes were removed from the White House, uh, either through moving manifests from the moving company, who knows, uh, and other means that they could ably demonstrate the boxes are likely in, in Trump's possession. All that said, that's the only thing I would have put in the warrant. Just the we want the boxes back warrant. Really, really simple. And I would do that because it rises to the threshold of sufficiency. That is, it's enough. Then I would also, I think, point out that, as we were talking about earlier, the judge is going to do whatever the judge is going to do. And the judge is not answerable beyond that. The judge makes a reasoned decision with respect to, does this warrant rise to the level of, of executability? And the inside of the Justice Department, I expect that the people who were crafting the language probably had several forms of input, perhaps going all the way up to Merrick Garland. We don't know that, but just to make sure that they were all crossing the I's, you know, crossing the I's, dotting the T's. Yeah, sure. Whatever. <laughs> that they were getting it right. And, and even discussing strategy. Do we write it broadly? Do we write a narrow document? What do we do? And I think a narrow document would have served them far better in this case, just to get the job done, to satisfy the original requests and, and call it a day. So that's what I'm thinking is going on here. And that they also had a discussion about who should be in the loop and who should not be in the loop, who is inappropriate all the way up to the presidency for clear reasons, and not just political reasons, but reasons of real protocol. You know, the Justice Department is not the president's lawyer. They also act independently. And Joe Biden would have no say as to whether or not they were going to act on trying to retrieve anything from the former president. So he should definitely not be involved. And that, I think, would have been the other reasonable course of action that they took. Now, I could say this all I want, that the warrant is probably written to be very limited and that there were people who were deliberately excluded from the discussion because it was not their place to be involved in the discussion. If those things hold true for reasonable logic into how to properly do these things, well, that doesn't prevent others from engaging in open, wild-eyed speculation uh, and trying to make more of what is actually not there. I think what we're looking at is just... There's a breakdown, obviously, uh, between, I mean, there's always the sense Watergate. I mean, I came up during Watergate, uh, went into the couple of Watergate hearings when I was down in Washington. And there's a sense that there is a breakdown. There has been a breakdown. There will continue to be a breakdown. How do we and can we repair it after all this time? But there's always been the suspicion of politicians. It's just the nature of the beast that we're going to suspect politicians of being two-faced, saying one thing and doing another, looking out for themselves, looking out for their special, you know, their own interests and the interests of those around them and the ones who are paying them off. That has not always been the case. So it's, it's time to, if we could ever do this, sit back and have a reasoned discussion amongst people who do disagree. I have a friend who asked me, I said, knowing what I, what you know today, would you vote for Biden again in 2024 if he ran against Trump? I said, yes. And he said, and he looked at me, you'd vote for him twice. I said, you'd vote for Trump three times. It's, there's a disconnect between people 
but there can be a connection between people because this gentleman and I are still very easy. Um, nothing impacts our friendship on that level. It's just a difference of opinion. I'm not going to take up arms against him. He's not going to take up arms against me. We can have a heated discussion and then sit down and have dinner. You can't do that in this country anymore. You can't sit down with anyone across the aisle and have dinner anymore. It's becoming that, uh, that dangerous, I believe. Well, at the end of the day, we don't know if there really is a Marilagate or not. Um, <laughs> and, and so that's, that's you know, a, that oh, said, copyright that. Well, you know, better than copywriting, I'm going to go for the web name URL, <laughs> marlogate.com. Right. Well, somebody's filing for it right now. Mm -hmm. um, so that said, uh, I it will be interesting to see how this plays out. And I believe it will play out far larger than what it actually started out being, oh. which is probably we just want our boxes back mm -hmm. and 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 that, you know, it may go quiet. But, you know, the repercussions of it. I think are going to be greater than the actual incident itself. Well, I think it's got. Well, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's got, got potential a, to be another teapot dome. Well, that's it. It's a tempest in fifteen bankers' boxes. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, but it's um, it's one of those things with again. I don't play a lawyer on TV even, but um, it's uh difficult to prove intent and it's difficult to prove responsibility. Right. So whether this will actually lead to uh, legal proceedings against anybody is is hard to know at this point. Mm -hmm. I think that's what frustrates a lot of people. Well, it's with any white collar crime, it's it's uh, astonishing how hard it is to prove, and then uh, mm -hmm. astonishing often how uh, lenient the penalties uh, often are. Yeah. Well, I think at that point, gentlemen, it's time for us to say goodbye. And uh, we've certainly covered an awful lot of unintended ground, <laughs> but it was a great discussion. Good. Yeah, I believe so. Well, another more perfect union hour has flown by, and we do have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, anything you have, we would greatly appreciate. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. And if you enjoyed our discussion, let us know. And again, as we always say, more importantly, if you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. I'd also like to add, by the way, Nick, that if someone has a new topic that we haven't touched on, you know, we're always open to suggestion. What would you like us to cover? And are there mm -hmm. guests that you might like us to interview? Please let us know. We can handle that for you. And any of our past episodes at any time can be listened to on our podcasts. And that is available online at our website, WFPR.FM. For our representative, Jeff Roy, Peter J, and my co-host, Chris Wolf, I'm Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.